verse 24. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to the house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our, your, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do recognize that Apart from your gracious revelation, there is nothing that we can see and understand. And yet we also recognize, Lord, that you have graciously revealed yourself by sending your Son, who has made you known, even as you have made him known. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from being wise in our own eyes, 
May we not be like those who are wise and understanding in the ways of the world and yet could not see hidden truths, truths that were heavenly, truths that are eternal. May we be like little children, O Lord. May we receive the word that you have given us in faith with full trust in your grace and your provision. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might see wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we heard read at the outset of our service and the call to worship, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This world belongs to God, and this world is His field, a field which He has prepared for a great harvest. It's not the kind of harvest that many farmers in our own region are preparing to undertake right now as they send workers out into their fields to gather fruit and other kinds of crops from the land. It is like that harvest, but it is not identical. For the people of this earth, those whom Christ has called, those whom Christ has chosen to graciously make known the Father, they are the harvest. And even in so much as we might be and we are among that harvest, we are also called to be Christ's workers, sent out into that harvest to hold forth the gospel that he himself proclaimed so that men and women might believe that gospel and receive it with faith. But if we're to go into that harvest in a way that is faithful, we must receive instructions from our master, from the owner of the field, from the Lord of the harvest. That's what we find in the text before us this morning. So we find seven lessons that I'd like to pull out for you this morning. Seven lessons from the Lord of the harvest delivered to those whom he sends out into his harvest. Now, I've drawn together a rather large section of Luke's gospel, 24 verses. And at first glance, at first reading, they look a bit disjointed. It looks like Luke has thrown some things together a bit haphazardly. But one of the things that I do when I approach the text, and I, I hope that you learn to do the same, is I always ask, what is, what is the author thinking when he gathers together these different passages into one place? What are the things that bind them together? Why has he presented them to us all at once? In my preparation, there were times where I was tempted to preach a shorter portion of this passage. And yet, as I looked at it, I noted various facts, various uh, qualities that suggest that Luke would have us take it all together. For instance, at the very outset we read that after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Now that word appointed... It has a meaning that's hard to capture in English. It has the idea of showing something. You can see this, for instance, in Acts chapter 1. You can turn there or you can simply listen as I read Acts 1.24. You see in this passage, Luke, the writer of Acts, as well as this gospel, will use that same term when he records a prayer prayed by the disciples in the upper room as they sought to appoint a man to replace Judas, so that their number would once again be twelve. And in verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. There were two men who were qualified to be apostles. 
But they prayed to the one who was able to search the hearts of men and asked that he might appoint or show whom he had chosen. And in a very similar context, here Jesus appoints, but that sense of showing something is also present in this word. Why is that important? Why do I make a point of this? It's because I want you to see that this is not just about instructions for 72 men sent out before Jesus. Jesus is showing something to his disciples, to the 12 that is. And so the final verses in this section are a fitting conclusion where Jesus turns to them and privately says to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus wanted his disciples to see and hear something. Luke would have us understand that what we've seen And verses 1 through 22 is the content of what Jesus was showing them. Similarly, this whole passage is bound together in other ways as well. Note that that those final verses began with a beatitude. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Now, if you've been with us through the study of Luke, you know that beatitudes are a regular feature in Luke's gospel. Fifteen times we see that there are statements of that kind. Blessed is someone for this reason or that reason. And if you remember from Luke chapter 6 and Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, that the Beatitudes, those blessed statements, they are paralleled by statements of woe. You remember at the outset of the Sermon on the Plain how Jesus began with four Beatitudes and then followed with four woes. The woes are the mere image, the opposite of a Beatitude. Well, here we have the passage concluding with a Beatitude a statement of blessedness. And in the middle of that passage, we have a statement of woe upon those cities who had rejected Jesus. And we ought to take those together in this near context. We see then another way in which this whole passage is bound together. The third way in which we see that the whole passage is bound together is in the way in which the departure and the return of the 72 forms a kind of sandwich around the woes. Jesus interrupts his instruction to the 72 to pronounce these woes on these Galilean cities where he had done many mighty works, and yet they had rejected him. They had not embraced him in faith in spite of the miracles that he had done in their midst, and so he pronounced words of woe upon them. And that whole section then is bracketed by that departure and that return of the 72. In the course of time, it must have taken several weeks between what Jesus said in the first half and what he said in the following But Luke would have us take it all together. He speeds through time for us. Finally, there are some features of this text that suggest that we should look at this in an even broader context that call to mind things that we've seen in Luke chapter 9. And if you remember the sermon two weeks ago, I'll read two verses from that passage in Luke 9, 48 and 49. There Jesus said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Then we read that John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. Here, Jesus now is showing 72 others, besides that man that John had seen there, whom he's sending out to do the very same thing. And we see language that echoes what we just read in Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 16, for instance. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him 
who sent me. You hear that language of rejecting or receiving him who sent me. Later on, we see that language of in your name when the 72 return and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Just as we saw a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. So you see these literary features prompt us to look at this whole passage in a broader picture. And so I suggest to you that what Jesus is doing, even as he gives instructions to these new disciples that he's commissioning, is he's showing something important to the 12 apostles. 12 apostles who were engaged in rivalry, who were fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And here Jesus is showing them what they need to know to embrace his ministry in a different light, with a, in a light that embraces the humility that commends us to God. So he's going to give us and them seven lessons. Seven lessons. First, the first lesson will be seen as he shows the 72. As he shows the 72 to these disciples, along with something else, we learn this lesson that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the harvest. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, I want you to do a little bit of math, boys and girls, if you know your multiplication. What's 6 times 12? It's 72. There's a reason why Luke calls attention to 72. There's a reason why Jesus appointed 72. It's a question in your note sheets if you have those. Jesus was showing that he was multiplying his work. Six more sets of 12. And that brings us to how many sets of 12 when we include the apostles? Seven sets of 12. There's a completeness to this. And yet we're going to see that it's still not going to be sufficient. In that passage we read from Acts chapter 1, we're going to see that Luke calls attention to the fact that in that upper room, among those who were praying, that Jesus would show whom he had appointed to replace Judas in the twelve, that there were about 120 people in that room. Ten times twelve. And they were getting ready for more multiplication, something that was going to be on a different order of magnitude, as 3,000, 25 times that number would be added to their number on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is showing here that he's doing a bigger work then even the twelve understands that he is the one who has the ability to multiply workers for this great work. That number 72 also calls to mind a remembrance, something we read about this morning in Exodus chapter 14, rather the culmination of something we read about. We remember from Genesis and from the beginning of Exodus that when the twelve sons of Israel, well, eleven of them went down to Egypt, one was already there, there were seventy who went down, 70 children and grandchildren who went down in that number. And there were two sons, grandsons of Jacob who were already there in Egypt. That number, 70 and 2, calls attention to that earlier work of God, that work of redemption, as if to say, now, Christ, in Christ, God is doing another greater work of redemption that's going to multiply. And He is the one who is able to do that work of multiplication. No one else. And so he teaches them this lesson by showing himself to be the Lord of the harvest. And the consequent lesson then, as they recognize that he is the Lord of the harvest, and they see the scope of the harvest, as he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
they are to learn that they're to respond to this by praying to the Lord of the harvest, that he might raise up other laborers whom he might send out into the harvest. How different from the way they've been thinking all along the way through Luke chapter 9. They're concerned with their own personal greatness. They're concerned with what they might accomplish. They're concerned with the ministry that they've been given, and they don't want anyone else to encroach upon that ministry. And now Jesus shows them, you have no idea. I've got 72, and I'm sending them out. And just as we read at the beginning of chapter 9, as Jesus gave them instructions, when he sent the 12 out in a like manner, he gives the same instructions and the same authority to these 72. The apostles are important. They are a foundation for the church, but they had to understand it had nothing to do with something special in them. It had nothing to do with their own personal ministry. It had everything to do with the Lord of the harvest. And they weren't going to be up to the task of going out and bringing in all of the Lord's harvest. And so it was necessary for them, and it's necessary for us, that we pray to the one who is the Lord of the harvest, that he might raise up workers... We need to pray that He would raise up people in our own midst to serve by teaching, to serve in other ways, to serve in preaching, maybe even sending some out from our midst who might go to serve in teaching and preaching in other ways elsewhere. And we should pray for other churches that the Lord would raise up people in their midst to serve within those churches and to go out from those churches, planting churches and spreading the gospel. Yes, we should labor to train up people, to disciple others so that they might do that work. But first and foremost, we must pray to the one who is able to multiply his workers, who is able to bring in the harvest. And so in these first two lessons, we learn that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And we ought to pray in light of the scope of that harvest. We also learn some lessons about the worker that Jesus sends into his field, the laborer, that is, that he sends into his field, and the labor that he has given them to perform. Notice this language of labor that he uses again and again. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And later he will say, the laborer is worthy of his wages, or the worker is worthy of his wages. Jesus wants us to recognize what we are as we are sent out into this harvest. We are not entrepreneurs. We are not business owners. It is not our field. It is not our harvest. We are laborers who are sent out into that harvest. And this requires a different mindset. If you in business take on to yourself to start a business, if you're an entrepreneur, you don't work for wages that someone pays you. You work to make a profit. You work to build your business. You work to promote that business. There's nothing wrong with that in that context. But we need to understand that the mission field, the work that Christ has given us to do, it's not our business. It's not our personal little kingdom. That's the way the disciples were thinking. That's the way many are tempted to think in this day and age. We are tempted to think that Christian ministry is about getting a publishing contract or having a large congregation and having a a, a steady income and and, and living in competition with other churches. That's not what Christ would have us do. He sends us out as laborers into His field. And the wages we seek are the wages that come from Him. And you can see then the instructions that He gives to these 72 disciples. 
how they're to conduct themselves. It's the same instructions, a little more developed, but the same ideas that he taught the Twelve at the beginning of chapter 9. Here he says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now here we talked about this this morning in Sunday school, and we can talk about it again, but these instructions are not necessarily in their specifics instructions that are given to all Christians at all times and every place. Jesus' specific 72 disciples here were instructed not to take any of those things. But it doesn't mean that Christian missionaries in this day and age are, not, are to leave their wallet at home when they get on the plane. It would be a silly way to apply that text. But in this particular scenario, Jesus wanted these disciples to demonstrate that He was the Lord who provided for all of their needs. He was the one whose power they needed to depend upon. They went out like sheep in the midst of wolves. They were going to go into a hostile territory, if you will. And he said, don't take money, don't take a knapsack, carry no sandals, that is not, no extra pair of sandals, what you're wearing on your feet, and greet no one on the road, that is to go with urgency. Don't stop along the way, but get to the cities I'm sending you to, and go in and do what I'm sending you to do. He wants them to embrace this task with urgency. And when they enter a place, they're to go into a house, and they're to say, peace to this house. They're to be peacemakers, not people who come in a hostile way, but who come right away with an offer of peace. But if someone doesn't receive that, if they say, uh, if, if a son of peace is there, then you're, let your peace rest upon him. But if, if they're not, then your peace will return to you. Just move on. On to the next house is the idea. And then he says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Here's that, for the laborer deserves his wages reference. The Apostle Paul will use that text, citing it as scripture in a letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, when he uses that to explain why it is that someone who labors as his full-time ministry in the teaching and preaching of the Word is deserving of some, kind of, uh, some kind of wages from the church, is deserving to be supported by the other Christians. The laborer is worthy of his wages. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul quotes that very passage as the Scripture that proves it. But here Jesus is giving these instructions to the 72 as well to accept the wages that they receive and not to go to house to house. The idea is that when in the ancient world you come into a town, you depended upon the hospitality of the people who were there. There were no hotels, there were no inns, there may be a few inns, but not many. And so you, you go into a person's house, someone in their hospitality would see you in the, in the gate or in the town square and they'd invite you to, to stay with them that night. And you weren't to stay with them and as you did your ministry to then say, oh, the, the, another guy came along and he's got some better digs. He's got a nicer house. So let me go and stay with him. Let me hop around until I find the best place to stay. That would be consistent with a, someone who's seeking uh, greener pastures, someone who's seeking to enrich himself, someone who's not working as a laborer. But they're to accept the wages that the Lord himself pays and the wages, the, the, the means of provision, the, the wages that the Lord is giving is the provision that they need. Whatever house receives you, enter that and stay there. The idea is that trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust that your Heavenly Father is providing for you what you need. So he sends them in this way. He also 
tells them to receive what's given to them in terms of their food and then to give what Jesus himself has been giving. They're to do a healing ministry, to heal the sick. This was a sign that the kingdom was coming. It was a sign that was consistent with what prophets like Isaiah had predicted about the coming of the kingdom. And they were to do that, and then they were to interpret the act and say to those who were healed, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This was the charge. These were the instructions that the Lord of the harvest gave to the laborers he sent into his harvest. And even if the specifics aren't identical in our culture, in our time, the principles are the same. We are not to go out seeking to enrich ourselves or seeking to lift our own prospects and gain a following for ourselves. We are going out proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus Christ, His kingdom alone. In short, as we heard two weeks ago, it's not about us. It's about the one who is the Lord of the harvest. A fourth lesson that we've already seen hinted at is that we should expect opposition, but we should also look for fruit in this harvest. Jesus is not sending us out into barren fields, but he is sending us into fields that have weeds in them. We'll see that imagery used later on in a parable that Jesus will tell. But here we see the opposition described in terms of wolves, in terms of those who don't respond to peacemakers with a response of peace. And Jesus knows that he's sending his disciples out as lambs in the midst of wolves, but he sends them anyway, calling upon them to trust in him. He wants them to know that they should expect some hostility. They should expect some people to oppose the work that they're doing. And he wants them to respond in a specific way. Look at what he instructs them in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Uh, first, this seems very cruel. It seems like a harsh thing to do. If we go and we proclaim the gospel and people reject it, should we then go and point the finger and with hostility say judgment will come upon you? But in this culture they would have understood the act in a different way. What they were saying when they, they, uh, they shook the dust off their feet was they were doing the same thing that most Jews would do when they left Gentile lands and came back into the land of Israel. They would shake the dust off their feet. It was a symbolic act of saying, we are the people of God and we've come, to, come into God's holy land. But here Jesus is turning that around and saying that the people that I've called to be my laborers, they are part of my kingdom. And those who reject that gospel, they are as Gentiles, no matter where they live. They're not part of my kingdom. And it was an urgent plea, an urgent warning. It wasn't a way of saying, expect judgment to come this moment. It was a way of saying, it's an urgent matter that you repent and believe this gospel. And so it was kind of a way of, upping the ante, of, of heightening the message so that the people who had rejected to that point would finally get it. Not all of them would get it. But that very clear and visible demonstration was a way of saying how urgent this message of the gospel is and how urgent it is that when we hear 
it proclaimed that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the grave and that we must repent of our sin and believe in Christ in order to have eternal life, that we hear that and we believe it and we receive it with repentance. It's an urgent matter. We do not know when our Lord will return individually for each one of us or corporately for his people. And so we need to receive that message. As workers, we also know, need to know that as we face opposition, it does not mean that the kingdom has not really come. You see, we can be tempted to face opposition and to think, this is not working out. The kingdom's not going forth. People are not being converted. Rather, they're opposing and persecuting us and then think, well, this kingdom that's supposed to be such a powerful kingdom, has it really come? But here Jesus teaches us to expect these highs and lows. Opposition and rejection should not discourage us. And so he assures us, saying, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I want to say a word about the kingdom. How do we define it? How do we understand the kingdom of God? Some faithful interpreters have understood the kingdom of God as primarily a reference to the ethnic people of Israel in the land of Israel. I respect those interpreters, but I disagree. I think it's a, an error. I agree rather with Patrick Schreiner, who has defined it this way. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. At this time, and under the new covenant, Christ has made clear that the place of God's rule is in the hearts of his believers. His people, his church, is his temple. It's the place where he rules. It's the place where he dwells. He shows that throughout the Gospel of Luke as well. We've seen it because the kingdom is not proclaimed to Jews only, but also to Samaritans. And we will see that it's proclaimed to Gentiles as well. It has been proclaimed to Gentiles even. We see that the kingdom comes not through force of arms, not through the gaining of territory, through conquest, but it comes through the proclamation of the gospel in a way that's secret, in a way that we, we don't know how it happens, and yet when the word is sown in the ground like seed, it grows up and it yields fruit. We know not how in the lives of believers. And here in this passage, we see that the coming of the kingdom does not depend upon Israelite acceptance in order for it to come near. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near regardless of whether the people that they go preaching to receive it or fail to receive it. I make this point because some argue that the offer was made and then it was withdrawn and withheld for 2,000 years and counting because it was rejected. That's not what Luke is showing us. He's showing us that the kingdom of God indeed has come near. Why this matters is because I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that if you are in Christ, you are part of his kingdom and his kingdom purposes. You are laborers that are sent out into his field to bring in his harvest into his kingdom through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. This is not a promise that has nothing to do with you. These are not words that have nothing to do with you. They have everything to do with you. If you are in Christ, you are part of the kingdom of God. And so, as members and citizens of that kingdom, and people who are sent out to the world, 
We need to learn to face opposition with that confidence, knowing that the kingdom of God has come and is near, in spite of the way that people respond. We need to learn to say what Paul says in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. But not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul is not talking about hitting home runs or scoring touchdowns when he says those words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about enduring for the sake of the gospel, plenty and need, abundance and little, persecution and praise. Whatever we face, we need to know how to respond to those things with the confidence that comes through knowing that Christ is indeed the Lord of the harvest and His harvest will come in. That's what Jesus is teaching these disciples here in the Gospel of Luke as well. As he tells them to know that the kingdom has come near. And one final word as we look down to verse 16. He tells them to know that as they face rejection and hostility, know that it's not you who face it, but it's the one who sent you. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me, Jesus says. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me, that is the Father in heaven. And so we go knowing that we are Christ's representatives, that we are his workers, that we are to labor in accordance with the way in which he has called us to labor. We are not to be like those employees in a company who guard their knowledge and refuse to share it, who seek to protect their own job, or those managers who micromanage every aspect of their employees' work and cannot trust people enough to delegate to them. But we are people who need to recognize that we are sent into a harvest that is so much bigger than us that we cannot possibly do all that work. So we labor together and we pray that the Lord will raise up more like us. We don't seek to exalt ourselves over others, but we seek simply to be faithful to the Lord and accept the wages that He has given us. Now, let me return to this idea of judgment. If we have a lesson concerning the opposition that will come as we proclaim the kingdom, we have also a lesson concerning the judgment that will come when Christ returns. You remember the words that John the Baptist proclaimed in Luke chapter 3 when he told the people, even now the axe is laid to the tree. And he spoke of Christ as the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire, whose winnowing fork is in his hand, who is ready to clear the chaff from the threshing floor. There is a harvest, and it involves wheat and chaff. Some will be burned, and some will be gathered into the barns. And let me speak quite plainly. There are people who embrace Christ by faith. They will be gathered and welcomed into Christ's kingdom. There are people who reject this gospel, and they face an everlasting punishment. And we don't say that because it gives us joy or makes us feel a sense of revenge against them. We should say it with tears in our eyes. When Jesus says these words of woe, He's saying them of something that is yet future so that people might hear them in those cities and repent 
and find it in their hearts to repent. That judgment that will come on them, he says, because of the greatness of the revelation that they had received, will be greater than the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment that will come upon these Galilean cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, because of the revelation they had received, will be greater than the judgment that comes upon Gentile cities like Tyre and Sidon, who were archetypes of wickedness in the Old Testament. Why? Because like Capernaum, they were too proud to repent. They were too proud to think that they needed to humble themselves before Almighty God. So they thought they would be exalted to heaven. But in reality, a day would come when they would be brought low, brought down to Hades. It's a true proclamation that we must wrestle with and we must reckon with. We cannot explain it away. We don't say it with any joy in our hearts. Just as the Lord does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, neither should we. And yet, we must say it to faithfully proclaim the gospel. There really is a judgment. And it's really eternal. There really is a way of salvation. It's not through lifting ourselves up, and it's not through our own wisdom and understanding and our own mighty works. But that way of salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. He was shown through mighty works. Yet still... These cities did not believe, by and large. That's why he pronounced those words of woe. That's why we must also, not necessarily by shaking dust from our feet, but in a clear and unmistakable way, speak to people clearly about what is to come. Now we see that the 72 return. They return after all of these things with joy. And they're joyful, why? Because They have indeed demonstrated the authority and the power that Christ gave them. They're exercising demons. The demons are subject to them. But Jesus does not want them, and he does not want us to rejoice in whatever gifts and power he gives to us. Whether we are great speakers or great preachers or great servants or great missionaries or great in any other thing according to his power and his gifts. We're not to rejoice in that as if in ourselves. But the one who is greater than all. So Jesus presents himself again as the Lord of all. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority. The authority is from Christ. And the authority he's given us is to tread on serpents and scorpions, symbols of the evil one. You have all power over the enemy so that nothing shall hurt us. He's not necessarily saying that we will escape persecution or we will escape the sword. He's saying something in line with what he says when he tells us not to fear the one who can kill the body only, but to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They may destroy our body, but that won't hurt us. And so our joy should not be in the power he's given us, the authority He has given us, but the truth that makes that true, that our names are written in heaven. Our joy, our rejoicing should be in the one who has made this possible by his death on the cross for our sins. So he teaches us, just as he said, don't be worried when people oppose you. Nevertheless, know that this kingdom of God has come near. He said, don't get too high in the authority that you demonstrate or the power or the gifts you demonstrate. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written 
in heaven. Now all of this depends upon the gracious revelation of God to people who humble themselves in repentance. And that's why Jesus now turns his attention in a way that was public that people could hear, in a way that was revelatory, and yet in a way that was directed toward God the Father in prayer. As he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. Boys and girls, do you know that what Jesus is teaching? He's teaching your moms and your dads and the rest of us that we need to become like you. He's teaching us that God's gracious will is to make known His grace and His goodness, to make known Jesus Christ to those people who are like you, not people who are so smart and so learned, who have all wisdom and understanding, but people who are humble and depend upon their Heavenly Father in faith and humbly repent of their sin. That's what children are like. They depend upon their parents. They trust them. They look to them for provision. They say they're sorry when they offend. It's just natural, it seems, despite the fact that we also see the sin nature within them as well. We must be like them, for it is the gracious will of our Heavenly Father to make known these things, not to those who have all wisdom and understanding in that worldly way, but to those whose wisdom and understanding is from God. And that revelation we must recognize as all things comes through Christ. For as he says in verse 22, all things, not some things, not a few things, but all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And all of those truths mean that we are completely and entirely dependent upon the revelation that comes through Jesus Christ if we are to know God and come into His kingdom. And He is gracious and loving, for He gives that revelation to those whom He chooses. So we ought to look to Him with that humility that depends upon His gracious revelation to reveal these things to us. We are taught, very simply, depend upon the grace of God in humility before Him for the revelation that we need in order to know Christ. After having seen all these things then, as we bring this passage to a close, after Jesus has shown all these things to the twelve, He turns to them again privately. Note those words. He turned to the disciples and He said to them privately, and He draws their attention to what they have seen and heard. And Luke would have us understand that with reference to what has just taken place. These men who are bickering amongst themselves about who would be the greatest and how they would protect their little kingdom needed to understand that their blessedness, their blessings were not rooted in what they could protect for themselves, but simply in the very fact that God had given them this great privilege to bear witness to the mighty work of God as His kingdom came with power through Christ and went forth to the ends of the earth. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Their blessedness does not depend upon what they bring to the table, what they can protect for themselves, 
and the glory and acclaim that they can earn for themselves. Their blessedness depends on God and God alone, His gracious revelation. And it's enough that they get to bear witness to what He's doing, let alone that they should be granted the privilege of being partners in it. And it's true for us as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not be people who take this gracious blessedness for granted. Peter would learn this lesson as he'd write later in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, as he wrote of the things that God was doing to this early church, saying concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. But you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Brothers and sisters, we have a front row seat to what God is doing in this world through Christ Jesus. And it is a blessed, blessed grace that He has given us. Let us not be people who take it for granted because we become so consumed with ourselves, so exalted in pride. For as we've seen throughout this passage, pride is what goes before a fall. It went before the fall of Capernaum, it went before the fall of Satan, and it threatened to go before the fall of these twelve disciples if they could not see past themselves to the true blessedness that they had, not in themselves, but in another. They needed to learn, and we need to learn to say, like David said, in Psalm 84, verse 10 through 12, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good things does he withhold for those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, O Lord of the harvest, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let us be such a people. Father in heaven, you are the gracious revealer of these great truths. We depend upon you. Grant us humility, Lord. Grant us faith. Grant us this blessedness that comes not through us, but apart from us through Christ in us. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.